out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it is going to be the turn of this heat all the way from the late 70s and onwards because I spoke to the drummer, Charles Haywood, very recently to find out more about life, love, poetry, basically an awful lot about music. So this is the interview and after a few casual minutes of uh, chat to get to know each other, we got down to that very important subject that was the early years and those formative influences. Anyway, this is Charles in full flow. Charles, take it away. I think it's very important as well because that's the way that people, you know, you need to set up, offer models or offer examples or offer the fact that it is so strange each time someone falls in love with music yes absolutely um, i i i can't really remember a time without music i can't really remember a time when music was a thing that was done by other people and didn't include me it's been like that for me all my life i music is something that people make i've been doing that my first memory really is of playing pots and pans on the kitchen floor. Right. So, ri- so rhythm was definitely your thing. Um, well, um, rhythm's part of everything. Yes. So, um, and uh, some some things bring rhythm sharply into focus, but basically, rhythm's there in everything. And um, when you you know when you're two years old or something, um, everything's also possibly a musical instrument. In fact, when you're two years old, I don't think the concept of music quite exists. Yeah, actually that's true. Anyway, when I was about four, I was at school and piano lessons used to be a thing that you could have at schools back then. And the teacher came round and said... Um, I want you all to go home and talk to your parents and tell them that there are music lessons, uh, piano lessons available and uh, that, that they should get in contact with us if you, uh, if you want to do that. And as she was handing out a letter and I put up my hand and said, yes, please, I want music less, uh, piano lessons. And she said, no, 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 you misunderstand. You've got to go home and ask your parents first. <laughs> And I said, oh, I've already talked to them about it. Excellent. And we've already agreed. And it's like, so somehow or other, I can't remember where that came up, but it was like somewhere along the line, it had been discussed as being, you know, a possibility without even knowing what that possibility was. So my dad uh, loved music. He didn't really play. When it went pushed, he'd say, oh, I pay... I play paper and comb. Nice. Elementary kazoo. And he could also play a sort of um, spoons. Yes. But but, um, he loved, uh, he loved uh, big band and then the the smaller things, that big band jazz. Basically, before he went away to war, he had a collection of British dance music 
because that's all he knew existed. Yes. I suppose that would have been Glenn Miller as well, wouldn't it? No, no, this is before Glenn Miller. Glenn... This this would be Victor Sylvester. Okay. Um, Ambrosia, I think, was another name. Yes. And his orchestra. Maybe Paul Whiteman would be the would be the American equivalent. Yeah. But it, it wasn't even Glenn Miller. Oh, really? it, was, uh, it was it was da- it was called dance music, and it was like foxtrots and tangos and things like that. Yes. So he, he had a collection of all that sort of stuff, but then he got captured and tape, made prisoner of war, and he got to know some of the guys in the next bit along who were the the American GIs, and they had uh, they had their own record players in the camp. You know, the the American Red Cross had provided them with their with record players and with a selection of um, of the music that they liked, and also the, the the radio station was playing the music that they liked, and it was all this black American jazz mostly. So mm-hmm. my father became interested in. Um, Duke Ellington, Count Basie, Teddy Wilson, Ella Fitzgerald, Coleman Hawkins, Ben Webster, Lester Young. Um, mm-hmm. Then later on, Oscar Peterson, Errol Gardner. Meanwhile, also Ella Fitzgerald and yes, singers, you know, Billy Holiday and uh, Lena Horn. So did people like Elvis and Little Richard come onto your radar at all? Um, they did a little bit, but they weren't quite... Somehow or other, my dad's stuff spoke to me a bit more than Elvis or Little Richard. Um, Elvis and Little Richard and Jerry Lee Lewis, I could see that they were very good um, at making a, a vibe happen. Um I always really never got Chuck Berry. I really, really, really had a problem with Chuck Berry, and I never really got Bill Haley. Um, Buddy Holly I liked because of the strings, but then later on when I heard something like Pet Sounds, it was almost like, oh, that's what Buddy Holly was moving towards. But Yes. Yeah. It's funny you mentioned Victor Sylvester because I remember, you know, a few years ago, a decade ago, I was really into ballroom dancing, so we used to have to listen to the, some of those song um, albums, and I found them on Spotify and right. used to listen to them with great enthusiasm because it was Foxtrot, Waltz, you know, those classic yeah. kind of dances, you know. Um, yes. It was, it have, it, have it marked on the actual label. It would say... Foxtrot with vocal refrain, <laughs> or slow Foxtrot, or um, yeah, you know, Quick Step was another one. And yeah, absolutely. Yes, they were kind of classics. They were just you know. So yeah, I don't know. We you you know you can't do ballroom dance without eventually coming across Victor so so much. So then yeah. then during the sixties, obviously this was your teen period. Did you and and normally with decades they don't often run completely. You know, like from the O year to the nine. You know, so the sixties are often sixty three, sixty four when things started to really change with the Beatles and the Stones and then Kinks. Did you did, were you aware of that kind of m- musical movement? Yeah, yeah. Um, basically, I loved. Oh, I was already um, a little bit later. Like when I was eight, I was playing piano, sort of. Um, yeah, I, I suppose I got into the shadows. I got into what I realise now was Joe Meek. 
Right. I got into um, uh, a Phil Spector without realising it was Phil Spector, still seeing it as the Ronettes, the Crystals, and not sort of tying it back down. Just because I was very naive and sort of like, you know, just a, a person finding out for myself. Yes. Um, so, uh, and not very much media coverage really back in those days about what was going on. And, and you'd have to know where to, where to get that media coverage. Everything was much more broken up. You had to, you had to hunt it down, if you know what I mean. Yeah. But, so I really liked the shadows. I loved them. Um, I loved the shadows. I thought they were great. Uh, and then the Beatles came along and I found that very exciting and, uh, uh, later on, when I was a bit over-intellectualised about everything, I might have even said something about the fact that the band was playing instruments and singing. And somehow or other, that felt like a description of uh, uh, some sort of uh, idealised factory floor. Okay. It felt very like the proletariat and and the the the, the gentlemen and players that whole um, division that class division had been sort of squashed by the singer and the being the person who also did the the graft. Yes, I can't describe that, but that's definitely how I felt. And I remember thinking something's happening here, and uh, and then you became aware of the Labour Party and Harold Wilson and stuff, and it sort of went okay. So Harold Wilson sort of goes with the Beatles. Yes. He man- so, yes, he managed to get himself photographed with the Beatles, didn't he, as well, and the, the yeah. great white heat. Yeah, all that stuff. And it sort of didn't look right whenever it would be Ted Heath that was with the Beatles or, you know, Edward Heath or whatever. No. It, it's sort of like, oh, the Beatles are sort of Labour Party or, or something or other. I mean, I know it's all bollocks, but I'm talking about how it, you received it. Yes, because... So, by- you know, I understand that. But. Yeah, and be and and sort of because you were definitely at that right age for sort of that whole because from the early sixties, sixty three, say, then sixty seven was the summer of love, and then you had you know the, the kind of the fourteen hour Technicolor dream of Ali Pali, and then the explosion of LSD and you know that psychedelic sound. So you were right there, you know, at that age where you must have been thinking, oh, this week we've got the Doors, or this week we've got Jimi Hendrix, or this week we've got the Beatles. Did, yeah. that, did that all sort of come into your orbit at that time? By, by then, I mean, think, the thing is, um, um, three months now to me feels like uh, what a week felt to me like back then. So back then, I'm learning, I'm still learning, I'm, I'm committed to learning, but, and I'm, hopefully I'm learning at a similar rate, but back, back then there was, there was more huge steps to take. You, you jump from Beach Boys via The Who to Debussy, and then at the same time you'd also split off down to into Ornette Coleman, and that would be all coming out from The Who, spiralling off out. And you'd be doing that work of assimilating these different ways of organising sound. You'd be doing that in four months. Yes. All of these simultaneously. I know. Still, still connected to rock songs, but you're finding out about the Darmstadt school from you know Stockhausen and people, and about the idea of cutting up tape and just very, very small bits to make a bigger sound. That, and then you go, okay, so it sounds like cinema. It jumps and 
blah, blah, blah. So yeah. you're learning like crazy. So um, 67, I was going regularly to the Shaftesbury Theatre in, 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 in um, I was going to the, sorry, the, the Savile Theatre in Shaftesbury Avenue. Yes. So I'd go there. Uh, I saw the time that Hendrix played Sergeant Pepper and the whole room was weirded out because um, McCartney and Lennon were in, in, in the box. Uh, in 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 you know the the, the um these boxes the opera boxes yes because the Savile Theatre was your old traditional um, theatre so I saw um, that amazing gig with Hendrix where he came on and played Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band and it was just like the the record had only just come out and they were at the gig and it was just like the place was just like electrified it was electric it was amazing. Yes, and that's when Hendrix was still kind of doing it. Oh, he was way doing it. I saw Hendrix like five times. He never didn't do it. He did it every single time. He was like beyond doing it. It was like, it was not so much doing it. It was just letting it happen. It was <laughs> extraordinary. A, a, a phenomenal, amazing experience. But I mean, on the other hand, I'd see the crazy world of Arthur Brown also at the Savile Theatre, but... The stage set for the theatre production, which was Midsummer Night's Dream, hadn't been taken down. So the whole gig was played in the theatre set. <laughs> and, um, Arthur Brown entered on a crane with his head on fire on top from this top of this tower that was part of the stage set. I mean, these things were extraordinary. I saw the Floyd with um, Barrett. I saw uh, I saw the Who's. Several times during their psychedelic, who sell out through? I didn't. I never saw them do Tommy, but I saw them through the, a quick one and the who sell out. I saw um, uh, bands that were important, but you didn't realise they were important. Denny Lane's electric, um, um, and he had this electric string band. Oh yes. Um, uh, the Pretty Things, uh, incredible string band. Um, it's interesting. I was going to I was going to mention the Incredible String Band and the Hangman's Beautiful Daughter. Did you? Because they were quite way out there. So, for this sort of the perfect three minute pop song that was coming out all the time. Then obviously that psychedelic sound and and you had pet sounds. But then something like the Incredible String Band is quite incredible even today. And there was another band called Comus who was coming out around that time. We who were very bizarre and avant-garde so how did you find and you know kind of not so much discover them but how did you kind of find that kind of sound um well already by then i'd been going to camberwell public library uh, because i found that um people like pete townsend were talking in in, in one sentence they would talk about the beach boys Debussy, Ornette Coleman, and John Cage in one sentence. Yes. So um, all this postmodern stuff and we're so cool and we can multiple, you know, genre, genre hop. It wasn't even genres back then. It was just sound that was so liquid it could be organised in a vast array of ways for a vast array of purposes. It was just like... That was what it was. So if you were like me, by now, completely obsessed with music, 
completely obsessed with sound to the point where maybe it was like a bit, maybe it was a bit tunnel vision. Maybe it was a bit crazy, you know, so um, air conditioning fans would be absolutely fascinating for me by now because of the sound. Washing machines, all, all sorts of stuff would be sources of, you know, I go and visit a machine for its sound. I'd go out of my way at school to listen to the, I don't know, the, 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 the ventilation shaft. I'd, I'd make journeys to visit machinery because of its sound. I was just like sort of upset. We can go that way through the park or that way through the park. If I go that way through the park, I'll go past the grid substation. It hums a bit. <laughs> Excellent. So I was completely obsessed. So um, um, the Incredible String Band was, was another possible road or another beautiful valley or yes. another, another mountain or another um, river. They loved rivers yeah, and water, didn't they? It was another, you know, all music was suddenly a garden. Some of it was made of shrapnel and bits of cardboard and uh, and sort of uh, corrugated iron and it was rusting and it was crazy. And other bits were actually like a garden. Yes. And another bit would be like a train, a, a railway system or something. And it was, these were all cool. They were all music. And you could sort of move between them. Some of them was, were descriptions of your own body's digestive nervous system. Something, something to do with your own id. Some of it was much more about politics. It was just all there inside music. So an incredible string band. But I was thinking about them the other day. God made a song when the world was new. Water, water, shiny and new. Wizard of changes. Teach me the secret of water. Oh, was, yes. My little granddaughter was on the beach and she was playing with them um, some buckets of water. And she was pouring one into the other and just just playing with water. And that song came to, you know, into, popped into my head. And I was thinking what an amazing album that one is. Yes, it is a classic. Yes. Yeah, for me, that's their peak. Um, Strange Days is the peak for me of, of The Doors. You know, Forever Changes is clearly the peak for love. Pet Sounds, I think, is just like... Wow, can't, you can't go much further than that. Revolver is for me the best Beatles. That, that, I'm, I'm slowly falling deeply out out of love with Sergeant Pepper. Yes, though I still I still think Good Morning is such a great song. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's all these beautiful songs on it, but it feels a bit like um, you know, some of the criticisms that Lennon would make later. It's a bit too saccharine. It's a bit too um, look at us. We can use an orchestra, you know. It's um, yes. So what? What about the people like the Rolling Stones and that period with you know? Say, I know that was a bit the seventies, like Exile on Main Street. Did that kind of come into your orbit at all? Um, by now, I was making choices away from things like the Stones. Um, I, 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 I can hear that Charlie Watts is a fantastic, I mean, a super fantastic drummer. He is. He's really, really, really good drummer. Um, and that I can feel that Mick Jagger occasionally wants to burst, you know, sort of, what do they call it? Um, well, stretch the envelope or something or other, some, some sort of thing. He wants, he wants it not to be what Keith Richards seems to need it to be. And... 
I despise the way they treat Daryl Jones. And I sort of lost interest. There was, I think it's Exile on Main Street, though, is the one that was recorded really rough in south of France. Yeah, that's definitely the one. Yeah, well, that whole thing of um, recording where you're not in a studio, I mean, that became, even down to the fact that, um, you know, all the really good... Uh, all the good, really good um, music, all the good recordings from Rajasthan or from uh, or from um, Turkey or from Mali, all those good recordings would be either in the open air or in a church or in a you know, in a sacred space or in a home or, or whatever. All the good recordings of um, the William Pipes from Ireland were all in someone's front room. So uh, this whole really... Um, hermetically sealed idea of a recording studio. I, I got sick of that pretty quick. And then I sort of went through that process to sort of learn what I could bring back to the process I'm much more like, which is not, not acoustically treated space, not, you know, soundproof space, a space that you play your instrument in and you hear you slightly change your playing in relation to that space and then you record that and you might do all sorts of weird no not weird um sort of post product post recording production you might cut and paste or you might compress or you can do anything you want and that's all good too but this um uptight thing about it being this weird scientifically flat sort of space that's been appointed to be a recording studio that that doesn't feel it, it's very undemocratic for amongst other things it sort of shuts a lot of people out yes so doing with your very formative this is kind of your post school period and then the early 70s obviously the 60s it's sort of not completely finished, but there was definitely a, a door that was closing slightly, you know, with the death of Hendrix and Jim Morrison and Janis Joplin. Then you had Altamont. And then, you know, that, I mean, mostly a scene lasts for a few years and then another scene comes along and there's a new group of 16 to 18 year olds and they want their sound. They don't really want someone else's sound. So it's the glam period and and that beginning of kind of, I suppose, heavy rock as well as, as, as uh, you know, yeah, and, and also the beginning of prog rock. So how did how were you navigating yourself up into forming the band, This Heat? Um, right, so... Um, uh, start, I... I, I, um, I, I well, one way I got into... In, like the thread I suppose I looked at inside um, popular music was songwriting as opposed to a particular band or a particular um, style or, you know, a look or, or any of that stuff. I mean, I was just a bit too young to be a hippie. I, I would go to those gigs at the Savile Theatre and all the hippies would nudge each other and sort of, it was sort of like, look, there's these weird, groovy, 40, there's this 14-year-old, 15-year-old with his younger brother. 13, my, my brother came with me. Yes. 13 or 12, you know, and we were the youngest people there by three or four years. 
and everyone else was, you know, smoking cigarettes and all the rest. And we had our coats turned inside out because we hadn't got any. We just didn't know really what to how to do anything. So my brother, who was this like later to become this sort of visual artist, had this sort of intuitive sense of how to make things not what they were. Yes. He turned his coat inside out and walked around with the lining on the outside. And it just like, so we did a bit of that, for instance. So we we were sort of like these weird youngsters. But I was always used to being a weird youngster. You know, I'd be 11 and I'd go up to the West End music shops with my mother and I'd be buying drums or looking at drums or buying drumsticks or... I, 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 and I'd always be buying the, the, the cheapest thing going. I'd go down to the secondhand dart, you know, there'd be a cellar full of old r- rubbish. And they'd, sometimes they'd even give it to me <laughs> because they were completely bemused by this sort of 11-year-old with his mum buying bits of drum gear because no one played drums until they were 18 or, or 19 or, or something. It's something that or somebody got a guitar at 14 Somebody else got another guitar at 15. Someone else got a guitar, but then they bought a bass because the other two were better. And then they got a group together and they needed a drummer. And there was a mate who was like a laugh and or was good at music and could play the piano. But we didn't want the piano. We want a drum kit. And he became the drummer. Yes. Was, that, you know, that would be the way a drummer's happened. There weren't drummers at 14 like there are now. There was like three British drummers in 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 the U. There was three kids in the UK who were playing drums under the age of sixteen or something like that. Yeah. Everybody else was in marching bands, hoping when I'm out of this thing, I'll be a, I'll play a drum kit. But they were, you know, it, it was like it, it's nothing like it is now. You couldn't do a, you can practically do an A level in drum kit now. It seems to me. <laughs> Back yes. then, you had to, you know, if you if you admitted you played drums like I did at school, people looked sort of looked down on you. Right. Was it a bit like the goalkeeper in football then? Were you a bit the, yeah. the odd yeah. one out? Yeah, yeah. It's 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 it's, it's, the, it's the goalkeeper thing. Yeah. Yes. Everyone wants to be the forward scoring the goal. But yeah. No. yeah. 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 There's your, there's your guitar solo right there. <laughs> yeah, we in the crowd. With the, yeah. you know going down on their knees, yeah, you can't do that as a drummer, can you really? Well, you've got to make sure it stays together through the next bit. Yes, not. I know. This is a, though. Fast forward to the eighties, you had Motley Crue doing some strange things with the drum kit, but that's that's another story, isn't it? Really? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so when did you? I mean, did you go to you know a college or university at that time before you got the band together? Um, well, the, the intention was. Not to have it. When I left, when I left school, I basically tried to be in a band. So I, I, I was in Gong, and uh, but only for about two months. But uh, and then I was in uh, bands that didn't really go anywhere, or maybe played a few gigs, but not really. Or stuff. I a lot. I did an awful lot of auditions. I'd go to the, I'd get the melody maker every week, and the first thing I'd do is go to the back to this thing called Musicians Wanted, and I'd read through from the top because I realised it wouldn't be just D for drummer. It was, sometimes there'd be these other bits. So anyway, I'd read all the stuff, and then if there was an advert in there that I thought was interesting, a, a sort of like a call out that for an audition that I thought was interesting, 
I'd try and answer it, which would sometimes be very difficult because it would be a phone number and loads of other people would be trying to answer it as well. Yes. But, um, and sometimes it would be, oh, no, we've got the guy already. You know, or uh, anyway, or I'd get the gig and it would just be something that didn't happen at all. Or uh, like I did, um, I did an audition for Al Stewart. Oh, my I, God. You were the I, cat. Yeah. I didn't even know it was an audition for Al Stewart. It was like, it was all done via management. Right. And um, so there was an advert, uh, singer, songwriter, seats, drummer, blah, 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 and bass player or something like this. So I answered this and it was like, uh, oh, we're not at liberty to tell you yet exactly who it's with, but be at this place at such and such a time and... There'll be a drum kit there. Bring your sticks that you like. Bring anything else you might want to bring. Uh, and then you're told it's Al Stewart, so you play with Al Stewart. And Al Stewart saying, oh, no, you're... You, he, he, he went, oh, I really like... What you, I, I can get what you're doing. I get what you're doing. It's just not what would work for me. But it, I, I know people that it will work with. So he put me in touch with... Um, I think the guy's name was Bernie Holland, guitar player. Right. And um, um, Mike Pato, I think. Mike Pato? Yeah. Uh, yeah, it was Mike Pato and Bernie Holland. They, um, so, so, I mean, I don't know if you know these names, but they were, they were, they were people that were just playing a lot. So no. um, you'd, get, you'd go and do an audition, not get the audition, but they'd put you in touch with somebody else. Yes. Because they, they, it was like everyone was very hip. You know, you, your thing might be singer-songwriter, but you know what's happening out on the edges of sort of like what used to be the power trio or all, all that sort of stuff. You, you, you're not just confined inside your own little box. And not only that, you've got mates in all these different scenes as well. Yes. But then, so, yeah, so so as the, the 70s were progressing, obviously you were kind of getting closer to something quite interesting. Yeah, yeah. I, um, I, yeah, I, I, I came back from Gong. I, I put an advert in the Melody Maker. Uh, the people who answered this advert in Melody Maker, it was, it's just sort of... I, just sort of absurd who they were. But one of them was Charles Bullen. Yes. This heat with me. Um, so um, of all the people that answered the advert, and, and uh, uh, the, the thing is that about six or seven people answered the advert, and five of six of them are still like, it's, they, they've gone on to make careers that are, Fantastic. And it's just like that advert must have been a very weird advert because it brought it it only brought about five or six people into it. And every single one of them was like their own person. Blimey. Who, who were the other four? Well, I, I, um, Billy Jenkins, um, David Toop, John Etheridge. Do you know these people at all? John Etheridge, I is he a jazz guitarist? 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, he's nothing like anything I'm involved in, but he's he's sort of like he he went on to play for a while with um, Stefan Grappelli, for instance. I mean, yeah, I, I'm not saying that the, the reason why I chose Charles work we went on to work with Charles Bullen was one that I most wanted to work with was Charles Bullen. Yes. But all the other guys, you know, became a good good British blues players or blah de blah. They all became good at their thing to the point where they are still making music, if you see what I'm saying. Yeah, absolutely. No, I because I thought done an interview with somebody from a band called the Global Village Trucking Company last week and he said, Oh yes, John John we got this guy John Etheridge who was far out of our league, out of our league, really. He was kind of, he, he at the time didn't have a gig, so he kind of answered an advert and went along and played a few gigs with them. And then it was like, and, and also the band were coming to an end at that stage of, of their life as well. So, but it was, he said it was a bit strange having this kind of guitarist suddenly. Yeah. Who, yeah. Who, yeah. That, that's the other thing about Etheridge, John Etheridge is he, he's definitely a, a jobbing music, you know, he's a jobbing musician. But, um, I'm, I'm talking about people that I've not spoken to since the day of the audition, so I, 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 I want to stop this now. Yeah, God, Jesus, no, sorry about that. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. So then you got Charles, um, yes, and then did that feel like you instantly kind of clicked with him? Um, yes, it did, yeah. It, it, the, 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 the first time I heard him play, it was like, okay, I, this guy's... Um, Things that are just ideas in my head, but I can't quite work out how they sound. He's making them into sound. There's a thing he did where he was playing with a ferocious energy through a very distorted sound, but with the swell pedal, and all the distortion was ahead of the volume pedal, and he had the volume pedal turned right down. So very, very, very quiet. So there was this thing that was like, monster sort of heavy rock energy but it was like it sounded like it was a mile away and then it slowly came towards you because he slowly let the volume through and it was this thing of um, an energy that was very very loud but being played being audibly quiet this sort of like control of energy against volume and uh, density against volume and distortion against how quiet and all these ideas all at once and sort of contradicting each other and then something completely sort of um, second half of the 20th century simple sort of just make it get louder yes you know not not lots of notes on a piece of paper not not sort of not even a, just just you can hear he wasn't doing a crescendo. He was just making it get louder. You know, there was something different about the way he was being a musician. Yes. And so uh, the other guys were being musicians, even if one of them was singing more into a bucket than any, one guy sang into a saucepan um, at the audition. Um, even though it, it wasn't as far out as that, it was in some ways the, the sort of right sort of far out for me. Yes. And at that stage, had you, I mean, obviously you were becoming aware of the other kind of the musical scenes that were happening and bands that were coming up at that time. You know, the prog rock period had obviously been kind of in full flow. And then also punk had sort of hit in 75, 76 with the Ramones and Damned and then obviously the Sex Pistols. So so with, with you know, 
you bring this three, you know, a three-piece band together. Did you have kind of, an, you must have had an awareness of other things going on, plus your love of Jimi Hendrix as well, being a three-piece band. Did you did you kind of have a vision of where you wanted to take all this? Um, well, we were all we were already playing when the punk thing started. We started playing in February of '76, and names like the Pistols and Clash, we started becoming aware of them in March and April of the same year. So, in a way, we were parallel to punk. Um, we were maybe, if, if some of the youngest punks were maybe 16, 17, we were 24, 25. So we were like the elder, slightly older brothers. Yes. We went to the Roxy to check out, I can't remember which band we went to check. And, or maybe it was just we wanted to feel the vibe. And we did. It was great, but it was definitely like we were the oldest people in the room. It's <laughs> <laughs> very weird. So um, there was the punk thing had already happened. The the prog thing. I'm very proud to say I've never owned. Well, not I'm not proud to say this is. I've, I never owned. Yes, I never owned a gentle giant. I owned one King Crimson record and then got rid of it. Um, most prog rock. I didn't like because I knew there was this other stuff that was happening at the same time that was being ignored that I thought was much more interesting, which was like, I suppose, extreme prog rock, things like Henry Cow, but also um, some of the really good German bands who were using tape in interesting ways and screwing things up that way. And also uh, a lot of people like Sun Ra. Yes. And, and the... Um, and the uh, the whole European improvised music thing. And in a way, even Stockhausen and Cage as a sort of punk, you know, a sort of like a knocking down of what had gone before and setting up something else or imagining a thing that was supposed to be a toast rack as some sort of musical instrument or just something slightly... All these guys that were good, they usually had the slight sense of transgression about them somehow or other. Some yes. sort of breaking through. Um, uh, so Tony Williams' lifetime, both Charles Bullen and I had, had seen, before we met each other, we'd seen Tony Williams' lifetime. And uh, once you'd seen Tony, heard and grooved on Tony Williams' lifetime, which I'd already heard as records, but then you hear them live. Um, I mean, things like inflatable dinosaurs on ice just become so ludicrous that you don't even want to begin to, to go through that. So a lot of prog rock had stories to it, it seemed to me, and stories is just opera, and stories is a way of making people feel safe, that they know what's going on in the music, and I don't like that so much. I like not feeling safe about what's going on in the music. Yes. So a lot of prog rock felt very safe to me. So I'm, I'm, I suppose for me, during prog rock, the thing I would take during that period, there was a whole period where I loved Peter Noon's Oh You Pretty Things. And when I found out that that was on Hunky Dory, I became very excited about Hunky Dory. And then I got and changes, and it's like, okay. For me, it was the, 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 the little bit that was sellotaped over that period was something like hunky-dory 
or maybe um, the Lou Reed solos or the Kale solo, the, um, um, the early one, Vintage Violence. Yes. And how uh, did you, because you, you worked for a while in a, but you worked with quite, um, quite Sun, didn't you? Which was kind of with Phil. Yeah. So I was, at, I was at school with Phil and with Bill, Bill McCormick. I was at school with Phil Manzanera and Bill McCormick, who went on to join Matching Mole with Robert Wire. Yes. So you definitely were sort of around that kind of interesting period of the Roxy music world, as well as, um, yes, the Camberwell, is it? No, the Camberwell scene. Well, there wasn't really a Camberwell scene. I, I, I was once walking back from somewhere and I walked down Camberwell Grove and I heard this very nice thing happening in the basement. It was just, oh, that's nice. I stood outside and thought, oh, wow. And the drummers, you know, the last thing they need is anyone to interrupt them. But I, if, I, if, I, if it wasn't an interruption, I would say to them, God, this is, this is sounding good. And I found out later that was Joe Jackson. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent, yes. Yeah. And there was, yes, and I suppose there's the Canterbury scene as well, wasn't there, that was kind of... Yeah, 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 the Canterbury scene. Well, um, I was aware of that, and the Soft Machine were a very good group, especially when they were a trio. The minute they got a saxophone in, I was not so happy with them. Um, the stuff I've heard of them before, when they had a guitar in it, uh, when they were a quartet at the beginning, that wasn't so good either. But for me, when they were a trio, they were fantastic. So the first two albums, basically. Yes, because one thing that I've noticed with a lot of bands, especially the, the the ones, you know, I suppose it's the 80s things that I've done a lot of interviews with. I mean, they have this kind of narrative, you know, about a five-year narrative where they get together, they create the sound, they get a single, which is good, and, you know, hopefully John Peel gives it a play, you know, because often a lot of that kind of stuff in the 80s, which I liked, was, was I suppose, not quite mainstream. And then that John Peel session gives people that next kind of, I suppose encouragement and and sort of like pro, feeling of some form of progress. So you know, John Peel, you know, was quite influential because he you know gave you a play and also you got a John Peel session, didn't you? Um, you? We got the session before we got a play because um, when we did the first session, we hadn't made an album yet. He, he was very very key. He was keystone or whatever. The, you know, he was central to the fact that we managed to start playing for instance in Europe you know people became aware of us and then we get invitations from you know the left field clubs in Holland were the first ones to sort of talk to us yes. so we in Rotterdam and we played in I think it was Eindhoven and then we went back to England and then we got suddenly we've got more gigs and so that was all because of Peel yes and did you? And was that one of the first times you were in a recording studio with John Peel in that session? No, 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 no. The first time I was in the recording studio was um, when Quiet Sun did a demo, and we, we recorded it at the, um, the studio owned by the a guy who wrote um, "Black Is Black." I want my baby back from, from a band called Los Bravos. God, I remember the single, but I don't remember who it was. Yeah, yeah, it was it's Los Bravos because he told us several times. <laughs> so that was the first time, and then I'd um, uh, I'd done uh, a couple of recording sessions for people, 
And I'd done some radio before with a, a, a jazz thing, with a sort of free improvisation group. And uh, the Quiet Sun album was recorded at Basing Street, the island studio. Right. Blimey. So, so by the time, um, time we did Peel, that wasn't such a big deal for me. Yes. I think for a lot of bands, it just gives them that feeling that they're... Because I think with a lot of people, and I mean, I don't know how it works nowadays, no one seems to know, but back then there were the kind of, there were gatekeepers, weren't there? There was like the music press, you had John Peel, you know, you, a lot of clubs, you know, a lot of every town and city seemed to have an alternative night. So that if you, if you managed to sort of get a few plays in on a John Peel show, the likelihood is that you'd get a few gigs around the country, which would feel like a bit exciting getting in a transit van and going up to Leeds or Leicester or Brighton, Bristol, you know, or Glasgow. So it kind of, I think it helps people feel like they're, they're, there's a purpose of what they're doing, that they're not just kind of going nowhere fast. I think that's kind of an important part of any band, really. Um, well, yeah, I mean, um, I, I, I'm, I'm not arguing, I, I wouldn't argue with that at all. It was, um, it was a, a great thing to be able to do it. Um, we were very arrogant. We we had a blue and yellow cassette for our demo because we thought that that would make it very very easy for people to see where it was in the pile, which was definitely true. And we um, we harassed them so much that they sort of in the end gave up their um, um oh if you came then that you, you know they listened to things in secret in order of having received them. And they were receiving like 20, 30 a day or something. And so we were going to have to wait. And we, we we just didn't take no for an answer. So we phoned them up every two days or something. And in the end, it was more like, OK, we'll listen to it. So because you just leave us alone once we've listened to it. <laughs> so they listened to it and they went, oh, OK, we'll see what you're going on about. So that that... that that was great. And the first session, um, it was supposed to go on until 10 o'clock. And then there was a wind down bit and we had to be out of the building by 11. And we started at 10 in the morning. And it was really supposed to end at seven. And um, it ended up with the nominal producer of that session leaving and the two assistant engineers wholeheartedly agreeing to stay behind quote we'll sort out the overtime later <laughs> and we worked these two guys into the ground and we didn't leave BBC session until we didn't leave the studio until something like six in the morning I'm thinking about this now, and it's just like, what the hell am I saying? Uh, the, the commissioner guy came in and twice, and it was like, no, it's all right, Bill. Um, we're just working through. Okay, well, let, let me know if you're leaving or you need anything for the for the lift or anything. Blah blah blah. I'm, I'm switching off. Blah 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 now. Okay, okay, thanks a lot. I had a headache for three days after the first peel session. I, I, I look back on it now and I think that 
I and the other t- and Charles and Gareth, I think we sort of hypnotised these two engineers. <laughs> we scared them. We scared them stupid, and we hit because Charles and Gareth are very tall, and we were all very obsessed with our thing. And we were making it. Uh, a, you know, it's, back then it was a bit extraordinary. Yes. And um, it was a bit scary. And they seem to really, really like it. So, yeah, I, I think we sort of hypnotised them with the front of our brains. We sort of like clamp, mind clamped them or something, and they they worked way beyond the appointed hour. They they, they seem to double their working day. Well, God, absolutely extraordinary. Yes, and then after that. Did you did you feel like the band had had sort of got that kind of experience that had galvanised you as a sort of a trio that was that gave it that feeling of like right we're on a mission now? Well, um, to be honest, we had that feeling from the from the very very first gig to an audience of about twenty people in an upstairs room in Hampstead Heath. We had we were very very arrogant, and um. What we weren't yet was just stuff we were yet to become. It was just like, um, we're on a road, we're going to get better, we're going to learn, we're going to be full of it about learning. We're just going to just, everything's sort of like maximum sort of share, maximum joy, maximum energy, maximum everything. And that's what we're going to do. So we know we're good. We're only helping Mr. Peel and... um, Mr. Waters by hassling them every day because they're going to want to listen to us and they're going to, of course, they're going to give us a session. Yes. <laughs> we're doing them a favour by hassling them every day. We're not, we're not, we're not sounding our own trumpet. It's not our trumpet. The music's the music. It's not us. It's the music. Yes. We're, we're letting them know that there's this excellent thing that they must listen to. And then when they, when they hit, listen to it, they must give us a chance to share it with more people. It's just like we knew that it, it, every time we got a no, it wasn't a no. It was just like you're ignorant. <laughs> that's the you joy. Know? That's the joy of youth, isn't it? it, it uh, the the big joy of youth, yeah. And then when you walk away from that and you start saying seeing it from a reasonable point of view or a, a, a sort of thought through point of view, or someone you thought you really trusted like a, a record exec who took you on board and then they're saying to you six months later when you're coming back with a new thing oh no Charles the kids have moved on now they're they're all sitting down with their significant other and they want to get a nice new flat and they, they don't want to know about you know Falklands War no they yeah. want they then, want they want to put Sade's you know diamond life on and relax. Time of, exactly. This is the time of Sade. No disrespect to Sade, she makes beautiful music. That's the the sad thing about all this is people get locked inside the image that surrounds the whole thing when really you listen to the music and it's it's good. Yes, absolutely. But then you know after that you 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 know, you got your debut album which you recorded for the next couple of years and it came out in in. Um, Yes, seventy nine, the end of the de- decade. Did that was that a, a bit of a struggle, you know, sort of putting that together? Um, 
Well, first thing to say, my, my immediate response to that is struggle is good. So um, if it's not a struggle, then there's a problem uh, because you're not pushing hard or something or other is wrong. Having said that, I would or could easily contradict myself and say the opposite. But um, that it, it, when it's good, it's when it's creatively good. It's when things just fall into place and all the rest of it. But the struggle usually is about trying to get it to be heard and get it to be accepted and to be sort of given some space. And that's um, become slightly less of a struggle for me in the last four or five years. And before that, it's always seemed to be a struggle. Yes. And I, I sort of welcome. Yes. I, I, I sort of embrace it. Uh, I, I'm, I'm, I, in a way, I find it slightly more difficult for it not to be a struggle so much. Yeah. Did you, I mean, looking back at that, was that 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 period of the band and those last couple of years, because it was quite intense, wasn't it? What's your, what's your sort of memory and feeling of, of it sort of coming together, you know, the three the three of you creating these kind of albums? Um, I think uh, we... For, for, The group lasted as long as it did, uh, and for it to have lasted as any further, the things that have happened since for each of us wouldn't have happened, I don't think. I mean, I'm stating the obvious there. In other words, you make a choice and then things fall out from that choice. And I'm pretty sure that aspects of my life that I very much treasure and value and from which I've learned and fed back into the music I'm not sure they would have happened if I'd stayed in a fixed relationship with the other two and I'm not sure if their version of that would have happened for them either so yes we, we all we all moved on and you know but for us to have given it even another two or three years we would have had to have been more mature people than we were at that time. And uh, the music, therefore, would have been not, as, not, as, not, not the thing it is now. Yes. The thing it was. So it's, it's a bit like saying everything, you know, for everything there's a season, um, things happen, things change, things move, and you can either regret or you can feel good about it but in fact the way we got especially deceit together um, and the energy on stage between us uh, it was pretty volatile and we were pretty on each other's cases all the time and it uh, wasn't always a laugh <laughs> you know um, I don't know. Maybe I took it slightly more seriously than the others. I, I don't know. I don't know if if that was it. I, I I used to love sleeping in the van. I I I was the one that volunteered to sleep in the van as much as possible. 
somebody I used to feel somebody because I found people trying to get into the van yes well absolutely so uh, it's like okay this is the most intelligent thing to do no matter where we are someone sleeps in the van and it's like okay I'll sleep in the van so I, I used to really quite enjoy that but um It was like you were very, uh, you were together, but you weren't together. It was it was good. It was uh, for me. It was it's like it's not supposed to be a holiday. Yeah, it's not supposed to be a a party. It's 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 it's, it's a struggle. Yeah, because I did notice. I have no, and I didn't really appreciate this until I did these interviews. That four to five years seems to be the lifespan of most bands. After that, John Peel session, the first album, generally that's a bit of a honeymoon period. The second album, not often the honeymoon period. Um, and and you know things by then, you know the the tensions in the band are quite a lot, and also the. Um, Sometimes I suppose it's the lack of money and, and touring, you know, like I think touring in the UK is not too bad. Europe can be a bit harder. If anyone ever does America, it seems to finish most bands off. So did you feel when you were recording Deceit um, that that was going to be the the last kind of kind of album by the band? Um, not at the time. At the time, it felt because I still think it's a fantastic album. At the time, it felt like we were only just beginning in a way. For me, um, we did almost all our touring was in Europe. We hardly ever played in Britain at all. We played in outside of London. We played maybe six gigs in the UK. That would be top whack. Um, we played. Um, we'd go away for two and a half months in Europe, uh, a stretch, and we do that two or three times a year. So. Um, Europe definitely took to us much more than the UK. Yes. Um, I mean, I, I used to love... Um, used to love... Uh, getting up in the morning in a place that I'd never been before and I didn't, couldn't quite remember where it was or which, which, which direction I was facing and then I'd sort of get my head in gear and then we'd get ourselves breakfast and all the rest of it and get in the back of a van and we'd, uh, 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 <coughs> a nice outing would be a two-hour journey and a heavy one would be six and a half, seven, eight hours to the next gig and we'd get to the next gig and there wasn't very much questioning. You had a lot of thinking but not questioning. You just basically had to get the drum kit set up with all the other things set up. You know, the, um, I'd be setting up the drum kit, Charles be setting up the guitar, Gareth setting up his keyboard and bass and everything. And then there's the bit where you eat. Then there's the bit where you get a bit ready in whatever way you need to get ready for the stage. And you maybe have, have, you're either in a spirit where you, you've got it, the, the, the sound check was a laugh with the support band and you sort of maybe hang with the support band or else it's like you just try and keep yourself for yourself. Then you play the gig, you exhaust yourself, it takes about two and a half, three hours to wind down, you fall asleep in a place you don't really know where it is and then the next morning you wake up again and have to go through the whole process but it's a different place and it's a different gig. And I used to adore the absolute sort of discipline of that and the fact that it was all towards basically an hour and ten minutes, and 
or an hour and 20 at most. And that you put all of the day and it all be being into this hour and 20 on stage. And it just felt, I just loved it. Yes. I don't know why I went off on that one, but... No, but it's good memories. But when you, you know, because when the album came out, you still toured it, but by then, was it the case that that you, you know, the um, Gareth had left, and then when you were touring, you had to sort of bring in a sort of a, another bassist vocalist to, um, yeah, do the tour? Yeah, well, we brought in two other people. We brought in a bassist who later went on to join Cam- being Camberwell now band I made after this heat so Trevor Garonwi and then there was a keyboard player called Ian Hill and we got the two of them into the group and we did a tour it was about a six week tour and um, the band wasn't nearly as good Uh, that was allowed uh, in so far as you have to go through things to get to the other side of the stuff. Yes. So um, at its most extreme is you have to make things ugly to get to the new beautiful. That that would be the most extreme version of that. You have to let yourself make something ugly to get to something that's beautiful. But um, I'm not saying that this group was ugly, but it wasn't overly beautiful uh but that was cool um, it just became much more strange between me and charles yes did i mean i guess at the time these things happened but did it feel a bit heartbreaking when gareth left or actually were you just thinking that was on the cards well it had been on the cards because of stuff nothing well Everything was related to the music. Everything fed back into the music, but it wasn't the music that precipitated other things that were causing problems for Gareth. Yes. So um, it, it had been on the cards for quite a bit of time. Uh, and uh, I think that Deceit is a fantastic album and when gareth left it wasn't so much uh, that i was concerned about the damage to our friendship the damage to uh anything the thing i was most concerned about was any damage to deceit because he left about the time that deceit came out and um, yeah, uh, so it wasn't so much a disappointment about anything other than oh, we could be playing Deceit now. We should be playing it out live now. Yes, and we can't. And uh, yeah, it's a yeah. It must have been very um, frustrating, actually. At that moment, thinking this is this could be this moment, we kind of got the moment. Um, it wasn't so much a question of being no, known or anything. It's just the the um, like uh, there was a, a a lull in the availability of 
pardon me, deceit during the whole um, Twin Towers Golf Golf Two. Yes. That, 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 that for about eighteen months you couldn't get deceit, and it was those eighteen months. And I was more. It wasn't so much about being known or anything. It was about having a certain sort of cultural information available to the public. I just wanted. I think deceit's got something to say, and I think people need to be able to access what it has to say if they want to. You know, it's, it's a free capitalist market in amongst all the units available to be bought and sold. I want deceit to be in there. Yeah. Yes, because the 80s had been a bit of a tricky time from, I suppose, from memory. Yeah, because Thatcher had got in in 79, there had been the Falklands, there was the whole threat of nuclear war, then the miners' strike. So everything by then was getting incredibly ugly and quite doom. There was a lot of doom. I remember being, you know, a lot of unemployment and job seekers' allowance and enterprise allowance schemes and people sort of thinking, what's the point of anything? Because we're all going to die pretty soon. So I'm not even, you know... There was a kind of a, almost from a younger point of view, the 16 to 18-year-old thinking, well, you know, what's the point? It's just not going to happen. Our lives are going to be ruined at this stage. Well, y- yeah. Um, I, was, I, I was in the raincoats for about six or seven months, and um, we did the uh, Jobs Not Dull oh, yes. um, thing up at the Free Trade Hall in Manchester or Birmingham. I can't remember now. We were, on, we, um, we were on the bottom of the bill with uh, The Beat and UB40. Classic uh, lineup. Well, we, got, we, uh, we were bottled like crazy, bottled and booed and spat out and everything. They didn't want the raincoats. Blimey. They wanted the beat or the... Um, UB, yes, they wanted reggae. They wanted scar and reggae, didn't they? Yeah, they wanted scar and reggae, and um, that was fine, but I think they also didn't want women singing at them. Yes, that's but, a bit... Um, you know, we've all got a bit more joined up since then, and we see the sort of structuralist and the structural thing and the systemic thing and blah, blah, blah. We, we see, sort of realise it. But back then... They wanted um, they wanted jobs not dull, but they didn't really think that having a go at these women was a, a problem. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's all very, it's all very good. But the big thing about that that those they did two nights running there, and on the second day, the day of the second gig, I went to a local music shop, and um. Uh, I got this kazoo. I got this kazoo, which is made out of an old bullet case from the First World War. It's called a Tommy Talker. Blimey. They were about to throw it away, and I just happened to be there as they went to do that. So for me, of that weekend, that is the, the big event, was this music shop and this amazing chance encounter with this thing that was used to sort of disguise the voice so that the Germans who could speak English and translate what people were shouting from one trench to another couldn't quite understand it as well because it was distorted. So it was called a Tommy Talker, but basically it's a kazoo. Yes, blimey. It's, it's um, yeah. And then 
after your tour, did you did you have a moment where you decided to um, to sit down and say this is the end of the band? Right. So during the tour, um, it was coming to the point where I'd rather work with the bass player and the guy who's our current sound engineer. I'd rather work with them than with Charles. But um, I'm, I'm thinking that in the back of my head. But I'm not sort of doing it, but I'm, it's like I'm, I'm coming to the point where I don't think I can work with Charles. The, the thing that was the problem with not working with Charles was that I felt that I was going to break a continuity with my songs because I'd contributed an incredible amount of songs to this, this heat. Yes. But because we were, we were trying to model a future of a different, different sort of political future, we'd collectivised everything. So the, the songwriting came out as Bull and Hayward Williams. And that's fine, but it felt like I didn't have a way of staying connected to the songs, and I very, very much regretted that. Yeah. All the songs grow out of each other, or they reference each other, or... Um, if life is like a palimpsest, like you lay things on top of other things, then those are the songs I wrote when I was 24. And there's going to be some other songs I'm going to write when I'm 48. And they're going to sit and lay out on top of the songs that I wrote when I was 24. And I want that to happen. But suddenly I'm leaving something and I've nominally given the songs to the whole project. So for about... 15 or 16 years, I felt exiled from the songs. But then Charles did an interview for one of his records, his second record, and he started saying about how he, he wasn't this and he wasn't that and that I'd written that and I, you know, me, Charles, this me, yeah. one here. And it was like, oh, okay, well, if you started telling people that, in fact, I wrote these songs because you no longer like them, I may as well claim them. So I, from then, I was sort of like... I've suddenly got liberated again and I could sort of feel like I've connected back to these songs. But the thing I most re re resent, the thing I, 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 during the tour, I knew I wanted to stop working with Charles. Then we had a meeting with the, all four of us that, that were in the original, that were in the group. And we said that we want to stop. And... Uh, everyone was cool with that and then Charles seemed to think that we meant that we were going to go on working without the other two and it just didn't happen so we just I just didn't want that to happen anymore so yes and that that came the end of it all really yeah but then you worked with the other two didn't you yeah exactly with the yeah. Camberwell now, that's yeah. right. And did you and did you feel slightly liberated at that moment? Um, uh, oh God, this is going to sound weird. I'm very uncomfortable if I don't feel liberated. 
So my normal state is to make sure I feel liberated. So it's, it's, it's only the point before that when you, when you the, the thing that feels like exceptional to me is to be constrained. Uh, so I'm not used to that more than the idea of liberated. I'm, everything I'm trying to do since I was about 14 or 15 and, and at school, I'm still trying to sort of just get myself liberated, really. Yes. Uh, you know, uh, uh, th th take the things that I want to take, but don't take the things that are just like sort of um, embedded against my will and, 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 and work out what those ones are. Most of those ones that were embedded against my will were before I became conscious when I was a child. So try and work through those. And mm. keep, keep the ones that were good, which is mostly about music. And um, about, you know, loving my wife, who I've been with for 47 years, something like that. So um, keep the things that feel good and get rid of the things that um, feel bad or you're so used to them, they don't feel bad, but they're negative and they get in the way. So try and get rid of them as well. Yes. So with, the, with that kind of liberation sometimes known as the honeymoon period did you have a bit of a honeymoon period with the Campbellwell now trio period i i refer to it as the honeymoon a sort of honeymoon period um, no and um, Campbellwell now was was much more um, in a way we were much more civilized human beings yeah. it was almost, it was almost in the process the the the, the machine that steve rickard developed um, the sort of tape switchboard thing slowed a certain amount of the process right down. So you'd have to build the sounds sometimes to get a thing to happen. You'd know what it was going to be, but to actually make it so that you could hear it, you'd have to go through a period of recording the sounds. And these sounds could be quite dense. They could be all 24 tracks would be two, two voices singing the same note. You know, so you'd have 48 voices singing the same note, and then you'd have five of those notes in a song. So this would take a long time to record, to mix, and blah, blah, blah. Yes. So it slowed the whole process down, and what that meant is that there was much less signal lying around. There wasn't endless sort of improvisations and guitar solos and blah, blah, blah. We'd work towards things and then make them, and... It was, um, uh, we, we got to a point and things in Stephen's life changed and things in my life changed and um, we could have taken a sabbatical and come back maybe a year or a year and a half later, but the group wasn't that big a deal that we could find a way of making it work. I, I was going to have to work as a musician, but in a different way. Yes. Um, <coughs> and Stephen wanted to get more into sort of publishing and stuff and, and books and change his life. And I, I know I was about to become a dad, father. So... It, the band came to an organic end. It was an organic end. You know, Trevor could see that that would work. That for us, if we didn't carry on, he 
been learning Russian and he'd been learning Japanese. He could sort of offer a, a, a you know, he, he, he had a unique set of qualities as maybe as a, a sort of uh, sound engineer for, for a particular gamut of artists in different territories. Um, Russian artists in Europe, Japanese artists in Europe, European artists in Russia, European artists in Japan. So it became a sound. Yeah, everybody's life. We, we just found nice, you know, nice equitable ways of sort of making it happen. And over the last tour, we sort of negotiated that. Yes. And, um, we all shook hands on the, at the last gig, and I think we went back home and went back to someone's flat and played some sort of um, family game like Cluedo or something like that. Something <laughs> very, very, very normal and mundane. Yes. Got so, quite drunk. Yeah. Well, it's nice to have a closure. I think closure is so important. Now, you've obviously done a phenomenal amount of solo work from then and did sessions with lots of people, including everything but the girl who we love. Um, so did just, I was going to say, because you then, I mean, obviously um, there was a death of a member of the band, which is obviously quite sort of like always a bit of a shock and surprise when someone dies that you've known. There's that point in life where you don't really know many people who've died and then suddenly someone dies and you think, oh, that's a bit mm, weird. And then you have a, a, a reunion, don't you, with, with Charles for a, for a couple of one-off gigs. I just wondered how that felt after all those decades um, do, you, do you mean the, this is not this heat thing? Yes. Yeah. Uh, well, it ended up being more than just a couple of gigs. It ended up because um, we did we did two nights at Cafe Oto with the intention of playing that them as sort of warm ups, try tryouts for the fact that we had a gig in May um, at the Barbican. Uh, and then once we did the gigs at Oto, uh, all tomorrow's parties and safe as milk, both of which have gone since gone into liquidation or whatever, um, they offered us gigs. So we had some gigs running up till June or July. But then in April, just before the first of the festival gigs, I was backstage at a, a sort of grotty venue in London playing a sort of regular gig and the staircase was all fucked up and I broke my ankle. So we had to cancel the gigs uh, and people had bought tickets for the Barbican. People had come from, people had bought tickets for the festivals. Yes. From all over, all over the world. People from Japan, people from Australia, people from all over. Uh, and there was this sort of like, it was really, suddenly, instead of it shutting things down, it opened things up. There was always inquiries about, well, when he gets better, can we get him to play? You know, so suddenly the next year we played quite a lot of gigs in Europe and we played, we played the Barbican and quite a few gigs in Europe. And then we played the States and we played the States, I think, Three different times, four different times, I can't remember. Three different times. Three different, you know, flying out to there, playing five or six gigs, coming back, 
we did that three times and then we pl- and we played japan um it was fine playing working with charles i mean in in so far as um i love the songs and i i also um i love uh working with young people, with youngsters. So I've been working with Nod and I've been working with Barbaros and I've worked with Laura Cannell and I've worked with these people who are three, two or three generations younger than me. And I really, really enjoy that. And there was a, a little bit of that going on in This Is Not This Heat, but there was also an intergenerational thing going on in This Is Not This Heat, which was completely inside myself. So I was um, a, a mid-60s guy singing material that I'd written in my mid-20s. And um, that felt like uh, collaborating creatively with a, with a, with a younger person. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it felt like, oh, that, that it felt really, really good. So, um, you know, I wouldn't write those songs quite like, most of them I wouldn't quite write quite like that anymore but I still really like them all I feel good about them all um so it's almost like I'm writing a so, singing songs from a, a, a different person but I, I feel like I, I, we would um, not waving for instance I think I sang that like I, I can't like a hundred times better than I sang it back in the day just like, and it, the only reason why I am able to do that is because I've had children and um, I've maintained a, a, a relationship and seen it through ups and downs. And you can do things better if you keep yourself fit. And the drum kit is a great way of staying fit. And playing drums and singing at the same time is an unbelievably good way of staying fit. Yes. So if you can still do that when you're in your mid-60s, but you've got all the experience of another 40 years, then that felt like I was in a really advantageous position. And um, it was cool with Charles. We, we made it work. And um, we were surrounded by other musicians who inspired us both. So it was a good thing to do. And then we had the good taste to know when to stop uh, we, I, I, I wanted to stop maybe eight months before we finally did, but the logic for con- doing those other twelve gigs or whatever was such that, as a musician, it wasn't a problem playing those extra few months. Yes, you know, and that, and that's another thing I've learnt, you know, by doing it. You know, there's a certain set of minor obligations sort of not even really compromises just going with the flowness of being a musician that means sometimes what you exactly want isn't going to happen but that's cool too that's the music telling you what to do not you telling the music what to do and for me it's always been important that i listen to the music the music tells me what to do i don't tell it so um that uh, and and I try to find where music is in the everyday and do the same in the everyday. I try to obey what is needed as opposed to tell it what it needs. 
Yes. I mean, once I get the message from the, the, this mysterious music thing about what is needed, I'm very, 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 very strongly on the case of making that happen. If you see what I mean. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, because you know, it was only last year you brought out your your late last album as well. So obviously, there's no there's no kind of um, there's no trouble in the creative kind of world of of kind of being able to find another. And more inspiration, I suppose. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm very lucky. Um, that one I made, I don't think, is anybody? No, that one's completely me on my own, the one you're talking about, Begin Anywhere. But I also make records with other people, and um, I uh, let my, even if I'm working very, very much professionally solo, I seek out situations where I can just jam or whatever you want to call it, improvise or whatever you want to call it in varying degrees of being organised about chord sequences or not chord sequences, or you know, either just completely improvised or just working on something or whatever. I just try and keep that flow happening as much as possible so that it's got a certain sort of social base, even at the bottom line. Yes. Some, most of my friendships are one way or another around music. Yeah. They might not, be, you know, they might not be players, but they're they're people who listen. Or yeah, yes. I mean, just briefly. I mean, because I remember when Joni Mitchell she um, did a live album, probably for quite a few years, or well, probably decades now, of some of her early stuff again that she'd reinterpreted, and then it had quite a different feel to it. Did you, when you were sort of going back and playing some of that material that you had done decades earlier, did you feel kind of, did that, was that quite, of a, you know, did it feel quite differently to you and, and the, the words, the meaning behind it? Did that, was it a weird place to, to revisit? Yeah, some of it was very, very weird. Some of it, it was, it was weird, um, like, Okay, I'm prepared to be more emotionally open, more emotionally vulnerable now than before. Before, I would have disguised it all in some sort of like curly and photography bollocks or something or other. I would have sort of disguised it as uh, X-ray energy from a different star. Or it's it's not it's not actually this emotion, it's a photograph of this emotion, or, or something. I would have given it some sort of art bollocks, some mm. art. And, pardon my French there, and the, the, the now I was able to be more just, you know, the words are what the words are, and I'm going to sing these words. And um, I've been, it's the voice has become increasingly the arena, it's, the voice is a, polit, a political scenario. The voice is a political arena. The voice is, um, uh, our aesthetics grow out of how we think about the voice. Uh, our acceptance of the world and of other people's humanity is often about is how we think about the voice. So to stifle the voice to not let the voice be as full on, to pull back from letting the voice be the voice. This is all 
part of not being liberated. I mean, this liberation thing, I felt more liberated now than when I was doing the songs back then. When you talk about liberating, feeling liberated, I, I felt much more able to hold not waving. Yes. And makeshift Swahili. And um, meanwhile, there's a, a chorus in Cenotaph, history repeats itself. And uh, suddenly that's, that's, instead of it being a song written at a point in time when you think you're singing about the Second World War, and that's the repeat, and you've already alluded to the First World War, and then the Second World War is a repeat, and you're talking about being in 1980, and then suddenly you're in 2016, 17, and there's these wars that have happened in between, and they've happened again, and you're about to go into another one maybe with, I can't remember which particular conflict it would have been at the time. Yes. Some, the Kurds and... Yemen or something or other, I don't know, can't keep up with it. Something to do with Syria. But um, suddenly the irony isn't an irony that's purely literary or something, or a nicety or a sort of clever middle-class observation. Suddenly it's an irony that is like really an irony. It's like, it's, it's, there you go, history's repeating itself. Yes, and that must be very... Then, <clears throat> some of the people in the band were, were old enough to be my children, if you know what I mean. I was old enough to be their father. <laughs> cool. Yes, that's a strange moment. And, um, and, and there's an irony in that as well. There's, there's suddenly you see loops everywhere. Yes. So, it becomes very, very weird. Um, it's not always good when you see that the songs you wrote at one point actually st still are still happening. <laughs> yes, that's the true. Half science fiction, you know, sort of almost like it was like a science fiction song. It wasn't what was actually happening, man. And then suddenly it's the, what's actually happening, man. It's the future. Yes. <laughs> It's a bit, a bit strange. I just, and just kind of lastly, I mean, if you could have said something to an 18-year-old self starting out in your sort of path of life, I mean, I just wonder if there was something, you know, like over the decades, some sort of lesson or wisdom that you've picked up that you think, God, I would have just whispered that to the, uh, that young person. And it could be, you know, I mean, it's a... Can I, say, I don't know, a bit of a conceptual idea, because sometimes people say, do you mean me back then or me now? But it's just kind of what what sort of thing that you would have just, could have yeah. just told somebody that you've kind of learnt from, from life. Yeah. Well, I just recently brought out a cassette that I made before this heat. The summer before this heat, I had the house in my parents' house to myself, and I made recordings using one cassette, record onto one cassette, play it back in the room, add another thing, play another thing, record that on another cassette, maybe do that two or three times. And so I made a cassette up that was built multi-track like that. So it's a cassette, it's a purely a cassette. And uh, Blank Editions brought it out a year ago on cassette. But to get it to be finalised and to do some things that I couldn't do at the time because I didn't quite have the technology and I always wanted to do, I had to sort of slightly manipulate it and then put it back onto cassette. And so I wrote a, a, a debate between me at the age of 23 
and me now. The two of us had an argument. So this idea is quite, uh, quite central to me, this idea of I was standing in Old Kent Road with a friend of mine, and she, she was older than me. She was a lady I knew from a community arts project I was involved in, and she said, this used to be my bedroom. We were standing in the bus stop at the bus stop. Right. She said, this used to be my bedroom. And um, it's like these moments layered on top of each other. It, it's like internalised Ian Sinclair, internalised geo... Um, so, you know, the, the psychic space within yourself of, of layering one thing on top of another. So uh, uh, Charles would laugh at me, but I'd go, look, mate, all I've got to do is just be 25, and I can remember being 25... I can access 25. I can access 43 when I've got my, you know, got two children now and I'm 43 years old. I can, I can access that. I've just been through it. I just go there. It's time travel. It's called memory. I can just bang, bang, bang. So the, 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 the 23, 24-year-old of mine and the, of me and the me of now, we, have, we often do talk. We talk to each other a lot. Um, it's very, very important to maintain these dialogues, I think. So uh, I would tell the 24-year-old that you don't know anything and you never are going to know anything. And when you get to 64, 65, the only thing you're going to know is that you don't know anything. Really. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's still, an, it's still a confusing journey, isn't it? It's a huge journey, and if, if you're not learning, then you may as well not be occupying the oxygen in the space of everybody else. It's all about learning. It's, yeah. it's, it's all about um, keeping your consciousness sort of bristled. Yes. And, do you, and, just, and just briefly, because I spoke to quite a few people who well, yeah, um, yeah, do, doing creative things, and some of, you know, a lot of it... I mean, with this kind of latest thing happening in 2020, I mean, the timing is kind of weird. Some people just did an album at all and thought, thank God for that. Other people have just brought an album out at the time when they were, had everything set up to do a tour and promotion and that hasn't happened. And other people are kind of in the process where they're thinking, well, now I've got all this free time, I could do something. And some people have said, oh, yeah, this has been really good. I, I planned to be in this kind of space anyway, so it hasn't really affected me. Other people have gone, oh, God, actually, I feel a little bit too confused and not in a, in a mentally spiritual kind of place to be able to do anything. Where, where are you feeling at the moment, you know, in the creative journey? Um, uh... Um, I feel like something has been definitely interrupted. Uh, I was getting a new group together, uh, which was going to do some new songs of mine. And we were going to, I was going to learn from the en the energy that I'd the energy, riding the energy, manipulating the energy, enjoying the energy, letting the energy magnify your own energy. That whole thing I felt when we did This Is Not This Heat, I wanted to let that happen with these new songs. So it was very, 
very in, intense, serious project. And the other four musicians were totally committed. And they were like, we were overjoyed that we were working with each other. Uh, so that has got put on hold. Um, I was, I've been working in uh, different sorts of youth, community and disability arts since uh, before this heat split up. I've had a, a, did a whole load of youth work, music, and working in this thing that the sound engineer for this heat set up. It was like the, I found a very funky way of working inside this, this sort of milieu. And especially when the kids were little, it meant I didn't have to constantly go away on tour for six, seven weeks on end. So I've been doing this one project I've been doing with a, disab a disability arts project, and it's about people with very severe, working with people with severe learning and physical disabilities. And some of the ways that this manifests itself is in how they move their body. They sway and they sway and they sway. They either divide the beat into three, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, or they divide it into half, one, and, uh, 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 uh. and often they, they divide this beat they go from uh, 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 to da, 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 uh, and then back again. And they will all be doing, they, they, it's a bit like uh, when you're washing spinning plates or something, they will be doing these things in different tempi. And I have been working with them in some sort of pulse therapy so that I can bring them all into the same place. And I've been doing that by finding spaces that are the, the sort of like in between any of their tempos and then being aware of where they are and I just managed to find ways of bringing a room together around pulse. So this means that if I do a song at 120 in one space, I might need to do it at 118 in another space. And the thing that makes the difference is the audience. So I've been working on this sort of pulse of the audience and then trying to manipulate that. So this means no drum machines, no click tracks, because those things are telling the audience what pulse they're at. I'm not doing that. I'm listening to the, I'm trying to pick up on the audience. So I do this by trying to be in the room before I go on stage. I do this by trying to pick up from the stage, looking down into the audience. I try to do it by feeling what the music was they've been listening to just beforehand. I try to just sympathize myself into their tempo and find what needs to happen. And this is what I've been working on. And it feels to me like this is some sort of communion and to not be able to do that right now when I'm really getting to this place where the tempo is the meaning, is the communality of the audience, and I'm trying to ally this to this new music. What they've gone and fucking done to me this time is just like, wow, this is really heavy. So 
I'm finding my way around that, which is there's cinema and there's theatre, and live performance is theatre. So recording is cinema. So let's do some cinema for a bit. So I've been doing some recording on my own and working on poetry and working on songs. But I can't wait to get back into rehearsal. We're starting rehearsing again in September. Yes, thank God. I know we all we all need to get back. <laughs> yeah. I'll, if they don't let us get back, we're going to have to do something about this because, I mean, I'm nearer 70 than most people and I know a few 70-year-olds and they don't want this for, for... We do not want this for young people. Yes. We, we, this is not what we want for young people. The, uh, people, you know, old people being considered to be more precious than the experience the experiences that happened to my granddaughter. I, my granddaughter's experiences are more precious than mine, you know, right now. She's 18 months old. She needs to really be able to socialise. She needs to touch. She needs to interact, you know. Yes, it's grim. It's very well worrying. God, anyway, look, this has been amazing. Thank you, thank you ever so much for this. This has been um, incredible, Charles. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you, thank you. David, I'm sorry I go on a bit sometimes. No, no, that's absolutely amazing. It's kind of, just briefly, it was kind of interesting, because I did mention that the Global Village Trucking Company from the very early 70s, um, and funny enough, the lead singer, John Owen, he, he, you know, he, he spends all his time working with children with very amazing, a uh, lot of, you know, disability and on various kind of extreme uh, spectrums and has to try and, and he, and he uses the music that he you know, had in the band, and that's what his kind of day job is now, um, doing that. Though he wants to still perform occasionally, but that that's that hasn't happened for a long time. But, you know, he, he said that, you know, the, the amount of just getting a response from somebody who's just n not responding, you know, can take a long time. And it was quite amazing, he said, it, but it's made his life worthwhile, so it was quite touching, really. Yeah, well, I, I would urge him to... to... Um, also do his thing in, in, in not in that setting because what I found is that, that that sort of work actually really informs the other work, you know, yes. the, the, the straight ahead stuff. As I tried to just say just then, you know, for me it's about tempo and stuff like that, but all sorts of different, you know, it could be how you think about songwriting. It could be anything. I, I, it, um, I, I, it's for me, and it, it's not. Um, it was part of the whole process of making. It's the same as making that solo album I made. It, that they all feed into each other. If you see what I mean. Yeah, absolutely. Um, anyway, thank you very much, Dave. Yeah, look, Charles, thank you ever so much, and um, yeah, I'll keep in touch. But look, let's hope that you can start rehearsing next week. And thank you. Yes, let's do that. Yeah. And that was me in conversation with Charles Haywood, finding out more about his musical career, especially his time with This Heat. Anyway, this has been David East of The C86 Show. If you want to contact me for some random reason, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do at C86 Show. Also, these have all been archived, and I've got hundreds of them, interviews with bands, mostly from the 80s, but sometimes beyond and before and after. Anyway, you can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, just do at C86 show. It's all good stuff. Anyway, thank you for listening. Have a great week.